Shalom. Thank you for listening to this podcast of the Jayberg Wilk Learning Series. I am Shmuley Yanklowitz, President and Dean of Valley Beit Midrash. Here at VBM, we strive to bring you only the highest quality of Jewish learning. Bringing pluralistic and innovative Jewish programming to the Jewish community that craves substance and insight is our passion. But we cannot do it alone. To support our endeavors, please consider donating a tax-deductible contribution to our organization. By doing so, you will be supporting meaningful Jewish educational content, funding the next generation of leaders, as well as furthering Jewish wisdom to people all over the country and all over the world. Please visit www.valleybatemadrash.org. Thank you so much and enjoy the program. the ways that I've been thinking about God, different than the ways I was told you're supposed to think about God. And to do that, I have to be very personal. Theology isn't about something you can prove. It's not like mathematics. It's not even like history in which there are facts and you interpret the facts. It's really the poetry of how do you make sense out of everything. So for me, I need to go back and tell you that I was raised in a very anti-religious home. So I grew up an atheist. And I grew up in San Francisco, which happens to be a fabulous place to be an atheist. (laughs) There's there's lots of good things to do in San Francisco. So I went away to college. And it was in college that I met and fell in love with God. Uh, It could have been hormonal. The same semester that I fell in love with God, I also met and fell in love with Ilana, who 36 years later is still my wife. So same God, same woman. I am nothing if not loyal. (laughs) And I started uh, reading about religion and going to services. And the college was a beautiful place to explore religion in a non-judgmental way. Like many people who came to it, I was a bit of a zealot. Um, I thought that what I had discovered was so overwhelmingly beautiful and reasonable that anyone should come around to it. So I became the impossible relative. I started giving people books about Judaism. Um, People were always a little leery when I would come up with a birthday present for them. I was like, no thanks. Um, And uh, and then I, I had planned on going into politics. Uh, That didn't work out for a variety of reasons, for which I now thank God. Uh, And my then fiance, the aforementioned Ilana, said to me, well, you've always talked about when you retired going to rabbinical school. And if that's what you want to do, you should not postpone it. You should do it now. So I always listened to her, um, 36 years. I always listened to her. And uh, so I applied to rabbinical school. And uh, we moved to New York. At the time, there wasn't a separate program in California. So went to New York. Five years later, ordained, took a pulpit in Southern California. When I got to Mission Viejo, they had about 200 families. When I left, they had about 600 families. The place boomed many times over. It was a very exciting and dynamic time in my life. And like many young conservative rabbis, I was a bit of a zealot. I felt that if I hustled enough, and if I taught enough, and I worked hard enough, that everyone would become from, which you know is not always how it works out. 
So things were going fine. The pulpit was great. I loved my congregation. I loved the people. Five years into it, uh, Alana became pregnant with our twins. And, uh, and the kids were born. And things were going fine. And then about two years into it, Jacob started having behavioral differences. He wasn't speaking. And he wasn't behaving appropriately. And he was having temper tantrums and meltdowns. And one of our congregants came up to me and said, you know, Rabbi, I don't want to step on any toes or cross any lines. But I think it would be a good idea for you to have him checked. So we did. And the doctor diagnosed him with, um, with autism. And that began a whole different phase of life. But I want to tell you what it did to me that's a bit unique. For me, that was not only an emotional roller coaster and a challenge, it was a professional challenge. I was so angry at God, I was so mad that I decided I needed to just, God and I needed a break. So for two years, I didn't say anything to or about God. Now, it just so happens I had the perfect job for never talking about God. I was an American congregational rabbi. So I talked about holidays, and I talked about culture, and I talked about values, and I talked about the Jewish people. And we were just taking, I never stopped believing that there was a God. I just felt that we would both do better not talking to each other for a while. And, and because I'm strange, and because my mother is a psychoanalyst, uh, that explains a lot, doesn't it? Um, the one thing I couldn't do was go into therapy, because I've seen how that stew gets made. So I did the next best thing. Uh, I called up Dr. David Ellenson from Hebrew Union College, and I said I wanted to get a doctorate. And I want my doctorate to be in how could this happen? Like basically. So for that, I need to read a lot of science. I need to know about the universe. And ultimately, I want to write a philosophy paper about how could this happen. He said, well, that's not your typical doctorate, but OK. So I started reading about it. And I remember the actual the day. I was Every year, I go to Jerusalem for 10 days to recruit for the program and to check up on our students during their third year there. I was walking down the streets of Jerusalem, and I looked up in the sky, and I realized the bully was gone. There was no bully in the sky. I didn't believe in a God who coerces people, a God who forces people. I just didn't believe that anymore. He was gone. And I want to tell you what replaced that God. Because my hunch is, most American Jews, if you ask them, they say they don't believe in God. They also, by the way, if you ask them, is Judaism very important, say yes, which is confusing, isn't it? But I think it's because what they think believing in God is supposed to mean, they don't believe in. And they don't know that there's a different way you can believe in God that still counts as believing in God that they actually do. So this is a mission of return. I am going to try to give you back the God you actually already love, 
whether you know it or not. Okay, that's the task. You ready? Fasten your seatbelts. It's a wild ride. When my daughter Shira was in college, the local Chabad had this gimmick. They would pay you $300 if you took a 10-session course. And so lots of kids signed up for the course, not with the best of motives, but they signed up for the course. And my daughter did it with the worst of motives. She wanted the money. So some poor, young, newly ordained Chabad guy gets up in class, and he starts the class by saying, to believe in God, you have to believe in a being who is eternal and all-knowing and all-powerful and all-good. Now, while Shira is my daughter, she will also be the first to tell you she's never read anything I've written because I am her father. But she's listened to way too many of my sermons. So she's in the room with the other students, and he tells them that believing in God is eternal, all-powerful, all-knowing, a good. And my daughter has a bit of a volume control issue. She was the coxswain on the women's crew team. That's the person who shouts at everybody. The perfect job for her. And uh, she says loud enough so that the whole room hears it, that's not true. So he, like many rabbis, assumes that when you disagree, it's because you didn't hear him properly. <laughs> so he goes over to her and he says, no, Shira, to believe in God, you have to believe in someone who is all-knowing and all-powerful and all-good. And she says, listen, I don't know what the arguments are, but I know there are arguments against that which it turns out is the perfect thing to say to someone because then they can't argue back. <laughs> I want to give you the arguments. It is classically held in Jewish, Muslim, and Christian thought that to believe in God is to believe in the greatest of all possible beings, and that's defined as all-knowing, all-powerful, all-good, and eternal. I want to pick apart those terms. All-powerful means there is nothing that God cannot do. Got it? There is nothing beyond this God's power. I want to tell you why that's a bad idea. If God has all the power, then how much power is left for everything else? None. If God has all the power, there's no other power left. How much power, how much energy does something need to take to move something that has zero resistance? None. It turns out power is a distributive idea. Either it's distributed around, and then you can talk about who has more of it and who has less of it, but if all power is contained by one thing, that's the same thing as if there's no power at all. A God who is all-powerful means the category of power doesn't exist. It's a nonsense term, which is why, for example, the Hebrew term for all-powerful found in the Bible is, that's correct. There isn't one. That's also true for the Aramaic for all-powerful in the Talmud. There's no such word because it's a Goyesha concept. I mean that literally. It comes from the Greeks. It comes from Plato and Aristotle. Aristotle addresses himself to a really interesting challenge. 
he knows that everything in the world is made up of a combination of four different elements. Those four things are fire, water, air, and earth. Correct. Those four things in combination, said the ancient Greeks, give you everything. And the thing that's amazing about them is that two of them rise up unless they're limited, air and fire, and two of them fall down unless they're limited, earth and water. Right? But all of them got combined because here we are. So something once had to combine it. If everything, said Aristotle, is the subsequent effect of a prior cause, meaning everything moving had to be set in motion, then you start going backwards in time. Right? So let's think of you for a minute. What is it that gives you the energy to move? Well, one way to answer that would be you just had dinner. Right? Okay, so what gave the energy to the food you had for dinner? And then you start moving back in time that way. Or if you don't want to answer it that way, you could say, well, I was given life by my parents. Great. Who gave them life? Their parents. And then you start moving back in time. Either way, everything that is an effect had a cause. You with me so far? All right. And what was the cause of this effect? Something that had a cause. And so, and eventually, you have to start with something that itself was uncaused. Why is it crucial that that first thing can't have a cause? Because if it has a cause, then what caused that thing? So the first thing, by definition, must be uncaused. The word for that is eternal. Eternal means space and time have nothing to do with you. So that thing must be eternal, and it has to be powerful enough to launch every subsequent cause to the end of time. That's where Aristotle said, so God is radically simple, unmoving, has to be unmoving because motion is an effect, and that God is all-powerful. But I've already told you that that doesn't exist in the Hebrew Bible. Nowhere is God all-powerful. God is very powerful. God is more powerful than anything else. But all-powerful, I don't think so. Right? And the other thing I need to tell you is that while that was important for physics 1,500 years ago, that's not what any current physicist thinks about the universe. Matter can exist eternally. It can be in motion eternally. What physicists have been thinking about for the last 200 years is not what launched it all. They're interested in how does it change. What makes matter speed up or slow down? What makes it change direction? It's the delta factor. It's the change in things. So that means we don't need, logically, an unmoved mover anymore. We don't need an all-powerful anymore. And if we don't need it, there's no room for it. Second category I want to make problematic for you is all-knowing. All-knowing does not mean, like your grandchildren, very smart. <laughs> all-knowing means that you know the future exactly the way you know the past. So let's play with that for a minute. 
You remember what you had for dinner? Go along with me for if you don't. Right? What's the possibility now of changing what you had for dinner? None. If God knows with that kind of certainty what you're going to have for breakfast tomorrow, the same certainty that you have for what you had for dinner already, then what's the possibility of your having something different for breakfast tomorrow? None. If God is all-knowing, then everything is predetermined. Then it's just a film showing itself. And if you rolled it to the beginning, it would roll exactly the same no matter how many times you played it. But here's the challenge. Judaism is premised on the notion that we have free will. And every one of you lives your life as though you believe in free will. I have a good friend who's a professor of physics in Pittsburgh. And he does not believe in free will. There are some physicists who don't. Right? He believes that the universe is cause and effect, one thing after. That's a reasonable thing for a physicist to think. So he calls me up one day, because they have to decide what school to enroll their daughter in. And he wants to talk to me about it. And I say to him, what do you care? You're going to enroll her in whatever school you're going to have to enroll her in, so just enroll her. That's the one you were going to enroll her in. And he said, don't mess with me. <laughs> Even people who think they don't believe in free will live their lives as though they do, as though their choices matter. By the way, this is one of the divides in science. If you're a physicist, chances are good you do believe in determinism. You don't believe in free will. If you're a biologist, nothing going. There isn't a biologist alive who thinks that if you rolled back evolution to the beginning, that it would play out the same way twice. All right, so, so what's the Hebrew biblical term for all-knowing? That's correct. There is no biblical Hebrew term for all-knowing. There's also no Aramaic way to say that in the Talmud because it's not a Jewish concept. God in the Bible is very, very, very smart. God in the Bible is very, very powerful, but not all-knowing and not all-powerful. Third and final category I want to raise with you is all-good. Here, you brought me in. I'll give you a fancy word you can use to annoy your friends. The term for that is omnibenevolent. Means the same thing as all good, but why not say it in fancy words that nobody knows if you can? Right? Omnibenevolent. <coughs> Turns out there is a Hebrew way to say omnibenevolent. Ki leolam chasto. Right? God's mercy and love is eternal. Ahava rabah. Ahavat olam, kitov, kitov me'od. God's goodness is absolute in all frames of reference. But then here's the truth, friends. If God's goodness is absolute, then God's power cannot be. A God who could stop the Holocaust, who knew it was coming, but who didn't, is not good by any conventional use of the term good. 
It's why Judaism doesn't believe in an all-powerful, all-knowing God, because Judaism won't compromise on God's goodness. The primary characteristic of God is righteousness, compassion, love, decency. So what do we do with that? There's a group of thinkers called process thinkers. I'm one of them. It was a way of thinking started by a man who was a mathematician, came to Harvard and became a philosopher, named Alfred Whitehead. And Whitehead, great thinker, set up a system that was developed by Charles Hartshorn, and then others have taken it on. I want to lay out to you what it says. His idea was that metaphysics had changed a lot since the time of Newton. Newton lived in a world in which time was absolute, in which space was absolute. But by the time you get to the 20th century, and you have Einstein's relativity theory, and you have quantum theory, we know as a matter of certainty that there is no absolute time. It feels like there is, but there isn't. We know that there's no such thing as absolute space. Right? You know that, by the way, without even knowing it. The computers you carry in your pocket, these are based on quantum principles. The fact that your, the lady in the car tells you where to turn and where not to turn, she's talking to you from a satellite in the sky. They have to adjust the machinery for the fact that the time speed is going different for the satellite than for your car. Right? If time were absolute, you'd be crashing because her instructions would always be off by a couple seconds. Right? So you already live a life of quantum and relativity theory. You already live with time being dependent on the viewer. So what if we take that seriously, that the universe is not made up of objective, solid objects that bang into each other coercively on the outside? That's Newton's universe. It's not ours. What if instead we recognize that everything in the universe is made of shimmering interactive patterns of energy and that everything in the universe is always instantaneously accommodating the choices of the rest of the universe so that the universe is profoundly relational and everything relates to everything else by internalizing it making a choice on what comes before it, and then putting the consequence of that choice out, which then becomes data for the choices of everything else. Let me give you an example of what that's like. I mentioned cars. I'm going to go back to cars again. Cars have changed a lot in the last 15 years. When I bought a new car, my new car had a woman who lives under the dashboard. <laughs> and she, not all-knowing, is very smart. And she tells me where to go. I tell her what my goal is, so I get to decide that. But then she tells me the most effective way to get there. OK. Most of the time, I listen to her. Because most of the time, she knows best. But sometimes I don't. Sometimes I don't because she's not taking into account there's no stoplight there and I'm going to get killed if I go through that street, which, by the way, she seems indifferent to. 
Sometimes I don't take her advice because I'm thinking about something at work and I'm annoyed. Or more rarely, I'm thinking about something at work and I'm pleased. <laughs> or very frequently, I stop at a light and the woman in the car next to me is curling an eyelash, drinking a cup of coffee, talking on the phone and driving, and I'm just consumed by jealousy. <laughs> How does she do all of that? For whatever reason, the voice in the car says, when you get to the light, take a left. And I don't do that. I drive straight through. She does not respond like the god of conventional religion, the god you all try to believe in once or twice a year and then give up. Right? The God who says, you have not heeded my instructions by turning a left at that corner, and therefore you are damned forever to be on the 405. <laughs> That's the God we've been told we're supposed to believe in, but we don't. No. What does she say? When you drive without turning, she says, recalculating. Here's what recalculating means. It means the goal is still the goal. You are free to decide what's best for you. Here's what I'm telling you is the optimal choice. You should take it. But if you don't, then I will tell you, having integrated that choice now as a permanent part of your journey, now what's the best way to get to your goal? That is exactly what I think God does with us and with everything in creation at every moment. Never coercive always honoring our freedom, always giving us choice. I do not believe that God can change the laws of nature or does. I believe that nature, having been a creation of God, operates under its own inner dynamics that God influences by attempting to lure towards an optimal choice. Process people call that optimal choice the lure. It's optimal in terms of justice, love, relationship, experience. But God never coerces, ever. God always invites us to make the right choice and gives us the knowledge of what that choice is, the intuition of what that choice is. When I was a young rabbi and I knew everything, people would come to me for counseling and I would listen long enough until I could tell them what they should do. You can imagine how successful I was as a therapist. But now that I am an old rabbi, shame on you for not disagreeing quickly enough. Now that I am an old rabbi, I know that my job isn't to tell people what's the answer. My job is to listen long enough so that they can hear what they already possess, what they already own, and to encourage them to follow that inner voice, that lure. So now this kind of thinking that God uses the kind of power, I'm not, just, I'm not here saying God doesn't do things. God is doing things all the time. Right now, each and every one of you, you know what challenges you're facing in life. You know what you need to be making decisions about. And you probably, if you're honest with yourself, you have an intuition of what you ought to do. You just may not have sidled up to it yet. So that's God. God meets each and every one of us in our individuality. 
and tells us the future isn't predetermined. You get to have a hand in shaping your future. You get to decide what choice you want to make. And it can be the lure, the choice that is optimal in terms of love and justice and compassion and experience, or you could choose for other reasons something else, and then God will be right back at you with the next lure. God never gives up on us. Years ago, my son Jacob heard me give a talk similar to this. Every autistic kid, many of them, have a superpower. Jacob's is that he hears through walls. It's a terrible thing to live with someone who has that superpower. Right? If my wife and I want to have a conversation that we don't want him to hear, we have to go for a walk. And we can only start talking once we're a block away from the house. And we have to stop talking once we're a block away from the house again. It's like living with the KGB. Jacob was listening. I was giving this talk at Camp Ramon, California. Those of you who know the campus there, um, we're in the Hadar, the room where they eat. So it's all glass walls. Jacob is up the hill in the synagogue building, which is this octagonal building. He's inside the synagogue with the doors closed. I'm down the hill in another room with the doors closed. So of course, he's hearing everything I'm saying. And when I start wrapping up the talk, and you always you know when a rabbi is wrapping up a talk, so I see him through the glass get up and start walking down. And he enters the room, and he comes up, and he puts up his hand like that. That's Jacob's sign. I have something I want to type. So I take out a laminated keyboard that I always have with me, and he types, Abba, if what you're saying is true, then God didn't give me autism. And I say, that's right. I don't believe in a God who gives people autism. And then he stops and he types, OK. And God didn't want me to have autism. And I said, that's also true, Jacob. God loves you. God didn't want you to have autism. The universe plays out according to natural law. And he says, so I should be listening for the lure so that I could know what God has in store for me. And I said, yeah, you and God have to figure that out together. He walks out of the room. Well, that's what I want to tell you. I want to tell you the same thing. There are things we don't have control over. I'm not saying we get to choose everything. But within our future, there are multiple possible futures. And we get to pick the one we pick. And then God endorses and helps us with that pick. God is always inviting us and the universe to move from chaos to cosmos, always. And that's what the God of Israel has been doing from day one, bringing us out of the servitude of Pharaoh into a land of promise in which we make our own choices. And then we pay a heavy price when we choose badly, don't we? But it's ours to choose, and God respects those choices. Two stories about those choices. My grandmother, who I adored, was legally blind most of her adult life. And as a result, my grandfather did all the shopping, all the cooking, all the check writing, all everything. And when he died, everyone assumed that she would have to be institutionalized or would die soon thereafter. My grandmother was a gloriously stubborn old lady, and she refused. And she lived for 10 years on her own, in her own place. 
because she just wouldn't give in. I think that's the kind of miracle God does all the time. Special effects, trust me, I live in Los Angeles. If you have a lot and enough money, you can make the sea split. But you can't make an old lady self-sufficient for 10 years. Only God can do that. Well, God and my grandmother. The doctors said that Jacob shouldn't bother going to school, that he was too severely autistic. It was no point. But the two people who they didn't consult with was Jacob and my wife. Nobody, nobody says no to Ilana twice, ever. So they didn't get the memo. And so they kept chipping away and chipping away. At the age of 22, Jacob put on a blue graduation gown. And he marched across the stage when they called out his name. I was weeping the whole time. But thank god my phone has a video function. So I knew enough to be filming it so that later I could watch. He walks across the stage. He takes the diploma. He opens it up to look at it, because, you know, we're all a little skeptical. <laughs> then he turns to the audience. He says, Abba. He runs off the stage, and he hands it to me. And I say, Jacob, you and God just did the impossible. All the experts said this couldn't happen. But you and God proved them wrong. So what does that mean? It means that I don't expect from God breaking natural law. I don't. I don't believe in that God. But I also believe that nature is way more super than we give it credit for, and that the choices we make make a cosmic difference. I don't believe that we pray as a form of life insurance or magic. I think the magic happens when we align ourselves with the divine, and then we make things happen that no one thought was possible before. And that happens all the time. It means that there's no one to clean up after us. That's not just process thought. There's an ancient midrash from Bereshit Rabbah. God walks Adam through the garden and says, I'm giving you all of this paradise. Don't mess it up, because there'll be no one to clean up. I believe that's true. But what God expects of us is that we should be God's hands and hearts in the world, and that we should make choices that give God pleasure, because I believe that the aspect of God that's eternal is that God forever integrates and knows our choices. So when we make bad and selfish choices, we are infinitely causing God pain forever. And when we make good choices, we're giving God joy forever. Some people don't like this theology. It means the outcome isn't guaranteed. It's not in the bag. It's up to our choices. If you don't like this theology, first of all, get online. Second of all, I don't believe in a coercive God. So I'm not going to have a coercive theology. If this doesn't work for you, you just wasted an evening. But I know there are people in this room who are thinking, 
well, that's the God I've always believed in. I just haven't heard a rabbi talk about it before. I've never thought that I would go into a shul and hear that God presented. So it's for you that I'm here. Because if I had to choose between the bully in the sky or no God, I would tell people I don't believe in any God. But I don't think that's the choice. I think the choice is, do you believe in a God who was defined by non-Jews for their own metaphysical purposes, who the science has worn through by now? Or are you willing to go back to the God of the Bible and the Talmud, a God who invites us into relationship and shares responsibility with us for the world and where it's going? It means that the outcome's not guaranteed and we live in an uncertain and open future. But it also means no one is seeking to harm you. And the correct response to people's suffering is not like Job's friends to tell them they really deserved it. The correct response is to sit down with them in their grief and then help them mobilize the strength to live a life of meaning however they can. And that we can do that even at the very end. So the last story I will tell you, this is my favorite process story. I had a stepfather who came from Częstochowa, town in Poland. And as an adult, his family was wiped out in the Holocaust. As an adult, an eyewitness told him that he had seen his grandfather's murder and wanted to tell him what happened. A notice had been sent out to the Jewish community of Częstochowa saying, tomorrow you are to appear at the train station for immediate deportation. So all the Jews show up before the sun is up, terrified, terrified. And his grandfather shows up dressed in his Shabbos clothes. Beautiful silk, full-length coat, beautiful fur hat out to here, lovely talit, full-bodied. He dresses like it's Shabbos. And a Nazi soldier comes up to him, points a gun at him and says in German, Jew, take off your Jew hat and your Jew shawl. And he says to him in Yiddish, German, this is how I dress to pray or to die. And they killed him. He never got on that train. And I tell you that story as a story of freedom. The Nazis could constrain his options. They could never take away his freedom of choice. He got to decide at the very last minute how he died. We get to decide how we live. And nobody, nobody can take that choice away. And the one who guarantees that freedom, well, that's the God we've always worshiped, the God we've always prayed to. Not almighty, but all good. Shalom. Thank you so much. Okay, so we're going to take some time for questions. Reminder, it's questions, not...
long thoughts, um, unless it's building up to a question. And um, for those who might be interested in things beyond the theology, is it okay if they ask on other, yes, uh, Rabbi Robson obviously thinks and writes and teaches on a whole plethora of issues, so if there's other things you're interested in, feel free to go there as well. And Lisa's gonna manage our second mic. So Rabbi Robson, we'll keep one with you here. Can we do that? Do you want to go to this place? Yes, we're good. First question, so you told us your theology and your approach. We just passed over the high holidays, and we're told the Rosh Hashanah. We're told, who shall live, who shall die as a rabbi? How do you handle that prayer? So, you know, he's referring to the Unitanatokah prayer, um, which is the first prayer everybody throws at me. as if that prayer doesn't make my point for me. But it does. Walk with me through that prayer. It is known before you who shall live and who shall die, who by fire and who by water, who by sword and who by pestilence. Is that how it ends? No. What's the ending of that prayer? Correct. Chuva. Repentance and prayer and good deeds can avert the evil of the decree. The point of that prayer is to say the future hasn't been decided yet. If you keep going the way you're going, there are going to be some bad things down the road. And the reason we're telling you this on Rosh Hashanah is because this is your early warning system. Stop making the same mistake. It hasn't worked, stop, right? And if you change your ways, you will change the outcome. That's exactly the theology I just gave you. It turns out we go in expecting the bully in the sky, and then, no surprise, we find it. But you're going to have to find a different prayer, because it's not the Unitana Tokef. That's one of mine. Here's what I want to offer you, something that I've learned from raising a son with autism. In a place where no one wants you, don't stay. That's just a good general piece of advice. Um, so let's assume a Chabad rabbi who actually wants to have the conversation, OK? Pardon me? I understand, so I'm telling you, there are two ways that I would handle it. If it's a Chabad rabbi who just wants to win points by humiliating me, I would not have a conversation, right? There are a lot of people in the world that I don't have conversations with. I can have a couple more of them be rabbis. The world will get on, fine. But if this is a Chabad rabbi who says, no, I heard your talk, I'm genuinely interested, how do you think that, right? I have some questions I would ask. Show me where in the Torah it says that God is all-powerful. Show me. 
because you agree with me that just because philosophers think something, that doesn't make it normative Jewish. Normative Jewish is I need to have a pasuk, so biblical verse. So, or show me in the Talmud where God is all-powerful. Frankly, show me in the Bible where God is all-knowing. Right? If you can do that, then we can have a discussion. But I don't think you can. You can show me verses in the Torah where God is really powerful, but you can't find me ones where he's all-powerful because they don't exist. So then what I need to ask you is, where is your theology coming from? Right? Because it's, it's not being generated out of the texts of Jewish scripture. It's your reading the scripture through a particular lens. Let me give you another example of that that may be a little bit less loaded. You all know, good Maimonidean Jews that you are, that God doesn't have a body. You just know that. Does the Bible know that? No. In fact, you, you're, you just read... God wanders through the garden in the heat of the day, calling out, where are you? Where are you? Right? That's not a non-embodied God. He's walking through the garden, and it's hot. Hot isn't a metaphor. Walking isn't a metaphor. We're told that when Moses gets to the top of Mount Sinai, God is seated on a throne, and his feet are on stones the color of bedillium. Whatever that means. Well, the stones aren't a metaphor, and the feet are not a metaphor. Turns out, when it says that we're made in the image of God, probably what the author of Genesis meant was that God looked more or less like this. Right? In fact, the Midrash picks up on that. One of my favorite Midrashes, Jews haven't heard this one, but it's a great one. You'll love it, and it will change your life. Do you know where we get the custom when the Torah walks around of pointing with our right hand pinky? It turns out that's a Roman imperial custom, right? When the emperor of Rome would do an imperial parade, people would line the street and they would point at him as he went by and they would say, ho imperatore, which is, hey there, boss. So we do that with our emperor when he walks around, which is the Torah. So we point with our pinky like good Roman citizens. Okay, but here's the story the rabbis tell. So it says that God made Adam in God's own image. The angels all wanted to praise God for having created humanity. But there are two of them, and they look identical. So the angels don't know who to congratulate, and the stakes are very high. If you point to the wrong one and say, way to go, God, the one who's actually God is not going to be tolerant. So what does God do? He sees the angels are hesitating to praise. He realizes what the challenge is, so he gives Adam a whack and makes Adam fall asleep. And they say this is like a Roman emperor who's in a triumphal march with the general. They look identical. Two old, pudgy Italian guys <laughs> wearing purple robes and leaves on their head. They look the same. So nobody knows who to point to and say, hey, emperor. And if you point at the wrong one, that's treason. So what does the emperor do? He gives a whack. He knocks the general out of the chariot onto the ground. And then everyone knows, oh, Way to go! 
Now that midrash, which is, see, it's as delightful now as it was the day it was first told, that midrash only makes sense if being made in God's image is corporeal. Otherwise, it makes no sense. So clearly, the rabbis of antiquity had no problem with God being physical. In fact, looking like a big person. But by the time Maimonides comes around, he can't live with that. And we are all such students of Maimonides that now when we read scripture, we get to those verses in which God has a body, and it's not like we reinterpret them. We don't see them. So if you read the prayer book and you read the Bible expecting a dictator in the sky, you will find that. You'll find it in the Machsor. You'll find it in the prayer book. You'll find it in the Bible. But why don't you try looking for a cosmic lover? Why don't you try looking for a companion who will take you through all of life? Because if you open the prayer book looking for that, you will find it. If you open the Machsor, you will find it. It's there. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Well, I give them a version of what I gave you. The shortest version I give is when someone says, I can't believe in that God, I say, me neither. And then they're stunned because they think it's my job to believe in things that are absolutely unbelievable. Right? So I tell them, I don't believe in that God either. If believing in God means believing in someone who could have stopped Auschwitz and didn't, I'll go further than that. It's immoral to serve that God. If that God is real and that God could have stopped the slaughter and didn't, it's unethical to serve that God. But I don't for a moment believe in a God who could have stopped Auschwitz a God who could have chosen Jacob not to have autism. You all have your own personal pain. Fill in the blank with whatever you want. I don't for a moment believe in that. I believe in a God who was working within nature, through the allies, through all of us, to try to bring meaning even into those camps. I believe that God was working through the occasional German who made the right choice, through the Jew who wouldn't give up and even while marching to their own death was comforting someone else. I believe that that's where God was found in the camps, right? And that takes a power that no army can duplicate. So I don't believe in that God either. But I can tell you that I see God working through my son every day, every day. And I saw God lift up my grandmother with a kind of strength I envy. So I would try to help that regular person. And I just want to hasten to say, some rabbis are also regular people. <laughs> not all, not many, but some. Um, I think we all struggle with that. And part of the challenge is, can we get the God we're supposed to believe in out of our head long enough to realize that there's a God we absolutely adore 
and have been serving our whole lives. Can we embrace that God? Oh, another story. So this year for Simcha's Torah, we go to a minion called Ikar. Ikar is this wild Los Angeles non non-denominational place, they get about a thousand young people coming out for Simcha's Torah. It's absolutely wild. Um, and we go for the first two Hakafot because that's all we can take, and then we blame Jacob and we leave. Um, <laughs> and this year, for the first time, Jacob felt good enough about himself that when they invited him to hold a Torah while people were dancing, he took it. And I have to tell you, for me, that was another process God moment. Jacob held the Torah like you hold a baby or a lover. And this calm came over his whole body. And he just radiated a smile. And then the people at Ikar, I didn't have to tell them what was going on. They just spontaneously started shouting as they were swirling by, way to go, Jacob. That's so great, Jacob woman came up wanting to hold the Torah herself, and she reached for Jacob's Torah, and he would give it to her, because that's what autistic people do. And out of nowhere, one of the rabbis swooped in and said to her, let's find you another Torah to hold. <laughs> right? My rabbi, Rabbi Browse, said she saw that, and it was the high point of the whole evening for her. And it was another moment I know what that took for Jacob to do. He's terrified that he's going to humiliate himself or us, that he's going to hurt the Torah, that he's going to embarrass the congregation. So for him to be willing to trust enough to stand in front of a thousand swirling people and hold the Torah that he loves with all his heart, God was in that room. right? And, and the God who I love is is a cosmic lover, not a bully. This God does good and not evil, right? I think that's the God you actually believe in. Thank you very much, Rabbi. I've enjoyed this so much this evening. I want to know if you have the occasion to have this discussion with someone from the Christian faith, Catholics, and how they react to your... So, um, one of the little funny things about the world, um, you know there are a lot more of them than there are of us. <laughs> so it turns out that process thinking was an overwhelmingly Christian thing. Whitehead was a Protestant, and his main student, Charles Hartshorn, was Protestant, and most process people have been Protestants for the last hundred years. Um, but what they don't have is what I'd like to call seichel. <laughs> you read Whitehead, and it sounds like it's still in the original German. Like, really, it's murky. It's very hard to read. When Harold Kushner wrote When Bad Things Happen to Good People, he, like all authors, went on book tours, and he would give these talks, and there would be one or two Gentiles in the audience who would stand up and say, you know, that sounds exactly like Whitehead. And Kushner, being a very well-educated rabbi, said, who? <laughs> so it turns out I invented process thinking. Kushner invented it 20 years earlier. Whitehead invented it 100 years earlier. Nobody bought his books. 
So the other difference is that when I published my book, God of uh, Becoming and, Bel and Believing, that God, that book, was co-published by the Rabbinical Assembly. So my Christian process friends can't believe it. I explained to them that I'm a rabbi in one of the major denominations of Judaism in North America, and my denomination published the Book of Theology. So you could argue that to the extent that conservative Judaism has a theology, this is it. Whereas my Christian process friends feel so marginalized within Christianity um, that it's not comparable. Like I have to tell them I'm not an oppressed Jewish minority. I, and when I give this talk in American synagogues of every denomination, the vast, I mean, there are a couple of you who think I'm destroying Western civilization. There always are. But the vast majority of you halfway through are saying, well, I've always kind of thought this. So, um, so it's very different. But there are wonderful Protestant, Muslim, Buddhist, and Catholic thinkers for whom process theology is the way they do their thinking. The great granddaddy of process thinking alive today is a man named John Cobb, C-O-B-B. -B. Uh, and he is a Methodist minister from northern Georgia. So everything he says sounds wise and beautiful. Um, and he is wise and beautiful. And he has educated a generation of Protestant thinkers who share process thinking. But it's never been embraced by the churches in the same way because, just to give you two examples, process thinkers aren't Trinitarian. They think that God is God, and Jesus is that person who made himself transparent to the divine will. And that's what makes him worth praying through. So he says, I told him after he explained this to me, I said, oh, Jesus is your Rebbe. And he now quotes me and says that. Jesus is my Rebbe. Well, for Trinitarian Christians, that's a heresy. But frankly, if that were Christianity, okay, I could, that, I could wrap myself around that kind of Christianity. That makes sense to me. Um, and what I will also tell you is they are the nicest group of people I've ever been part of. Um, the, the Christian process people walk the walk. They stand for the right issues in the community, in the world. They're truly pluralistic um, and embrace multiple faiths. They're not dogmatic in their thinking, and they are lovely, lovely human beings. So here's how I, I can't say it the way you said it, but let me tell you how I, would, how I would say it. 
First of all, what I want to say is, I don't care whether you believe in God or not. And I don't think God does either. I don't think God is a great big ego. I think that God is interested in us living godly lives. And that has to do with how we treat each other and how we treat the planet and how we sanctify time. That does not have to do with heaping praises on an egomaniac. Um, so it's okay with me if there are people who say, well, you know, this metaphor doesn't work for me. Okay, you can do process thinking without God. That's fine. What I would say is that what's wrong is thinking about God as up there and out there and separate from us. So let me give you an image that works for me. The Zohar, which is the number one book of Jewish mysticism from the medieval period, says that from the perspective of the honey cake, there's honey and cake and honey in a pan. From the perspective of the honey, there's just honey all the way through. So I think from our perspective, there are things that are God and people and world. And from God's perspective, there's just God all the way through. What I don't believe in is a God who is outside of creation. I believe that God permeates creation. I believe we are marinating in the divine. I don't think God is reducible to the natural world. I think God spills over it. And, and, um, and in that sense, the image I like to use is if you think of a pitcher that has ice in it, and then you fill it with water, it's not that the water has to get to the ice. It's already there. It's always there. I think that's true for our relationship with the divine as well. Right. Right. So let me offer you a couple thoughts. Um, the following message was not necessarily endorsed by the conservative movement or by your rabbi. Um, if the prayer book doesn't speak to you, bring a different book. I have a board member who I met because she was being honored at the synagogue I do high holiday services at, and we're sitting up on the beam with nothing else to do, so she started telling me how boring she finds the machzor. And I said, well, why are you here? And she says, well, my place is with my people. And I said, that's an entirely noble sentiment. But you can be with your people without being bored, so why don't you bring a book? And she said, are you allowed to do that? And I said, well, here, I'll make it easier for you. I will send you a book. So for the last 20 years, every August, I send her her book. And then she sits in shul, and she stands and sits and stands and sits with everybody else reading the book. 
Sometimes I send her a book of theology. Sometimes I send her a book of science or a book of history or you know whatever I think captures something that is related to the themes of the day, whether it's religious or not or Jewish or not. And when people say, how do you get to do that? She says, Rabbi Artson told me I could, and he sent me this book. <laughs> so you have my permission. Second of all, I want us to think about one of the things that's changed between us and our ancestors. And then I want to say something about translation. Our ancestors used monarch metaphors for the divine because they wanted to come up with a way to say in human language that God is greater than even the greatest ones we know. So you know the Monty Python line about how you know who's king? I'm not going to tell you because it's a shul, so I'm not going to say that here. Right? So a king of kings, that's, that's as good as... So the question is, is God what is ultimately worthy of worship? So one solution would be, instead of treating it like prose, what if you treat it like poetry? Every time it says God, why don't you think my ultimate values of good? And that's what the three words, G-O-D, those three letters, that's what they mean. They mean ultimate good, ultimate worthy of worship, ultimate worthy of holding up and recalling. For me, it works, but it works for two reasons. First is, the name of God, yud Hey vav Hey. those are three Hebrew letters, yud Hey vav that are simultaneously vowels and consonants in biblical Hebrew. You know that biblical Hebrew doesn't have the vowels under the letters. So, when I say the prayer, a word that's all vowels you can't aspirate. You can't pronounce. So when I get to God's name, I stop talking. Baruch atah. But it turns out all vowels is breath. You say God's name every time you breathe. So that's what I do. Baruch atah. Eloheinu melech haolam. That changes the whole prayer for me. I'm praising the breath of the universe. I can do that with those words. Second thing I do is I pray with a prayer book that's only in Hebrew. Because if it's in English, it hardens into prose. But the prayer book is meant to be poetry. You're not supposed to take it literally. I know that I can't do that in English. When I read it in English, it hardens into fact, and then it's trash. So I have a prayer book that's all Hebrew so that I can keep it poetry. And as poetry, I don't want the synagogue to be where I come in touch with my own deepest truths. Because if I'm honest with you, many of my deepest truths are not worthy. I come here to be in touch with the better truths. And for that, the image of the divine is what reminds me the story is not starring me. I have a support role in a bigger story. 
and I'm not the star. And for me, that's a big part of what Jewish worship is about. And so I use the Sidur to remember that. But if you can't do that, if that doesn't work for you, then close the book and breathe. That's okay, too. Thank you, everybody. Hi, this is Shmuley Yanklewitz. I hope you enjoyed listening to this fascinating lecture. At VBM, we strive to bring you only the best in Jewish educational programming. To do this, we host a wide variety of events throughout our learning season, including panels, classes, and lectures, like the one you just listened to. Please consider going to www.valleybetemidrash.org and donating to VBM to support meaningful Jewish education in the greater Phoenix Jewish community, indeed all around the country and the world. Thank you so much for listening.